This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Climate justice is our theme tonight, and I'm rather furious at the climate injustice that many of our speakers have suffered and are alerting us to. As Barbados breaks from its colonial past and reparations for slavery are being demanded, and Prince Charles is acknowledging the appalling heritage of colonialism Barbados has experienced, here is their Prime Minister, Mia Motley, at the climate conference in Glasgow. Our people are watching and our people are taking note. And are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? How many more voices and how many more pictures of people must we see on these screens without being able to move? Our centrepiece tonight shows the way forward with Karina Nolan talking to me about the First Nations Clean Energy Network. But before that, we'll hear from a climate justice rally in Hyde Park, featuring Uncle Bruce Shillingsworth, Auntie Nadina Dixon, and a Pacific warrior from Samoa, whose daughter was at COP26. There is no justice without climate justice. There is no justice without justice for First Nations people. But in our islands, we too have giants. They used to walk alongside us peacefully. Those giants are our mountains. They are our protectors. So with that in mind, it comforts my soul because I know that my daughter, although I've sent her into a war, she goes with the giants of the Pacific with a purpose. And don't get that wrong. This is full of exuberance and the trumpeting sound of a large conch that you will hear was in the background of the most graceful dancing from beautiful Samoan women and children. It was just entrancing in the park. After that, we'll hear Siobhan McDonald talking about the exhausting round of negotiations that she was involved in. She looked so tired in the webinar I saw of her talking to us from Fiji, just out of quarantine. She was disappointed that the loss and damage committee that 177 nations agreed to, to manage the finances that must flow to um, vulnerable countries. Even Australia accepted that but it was blocked by the USA. I heard her interviewed by Stan Grant on TV and I just admire her grit and liveliness. And this uh, talk today is from her talk with the Edmund Rice Centre. This is why loss and damage is at the heart of climate justice. 
So we hear about climate injustice for First Nations Australia and the Pacific. And finally, we have three youth delegates to COP26 from a group called Global Voices. They talk about getting a real seat at the table. That's kind of what I'm focusing on in my in my master's at the moment is climate justice. You will hear how polite and reasonable the voices of young, indigenous and climate affected people. They're also very positive and strategic, yet they still feel that they are being sidelined and not really heard. They're not around the tables where the decisions are really being made. Meanwhile, groups like Frontline Action on Coal stopped the trains from Adani's Carmichael mine last week. In Newcastle, a 22-year-old from Blockade Australia got a 12-month jail sentence for doing something similar. On Wednesday, the 8th of December this week, if you are in Sydney, you can contact the Stop Adani group who are taking creative, non-violent action. They're targeting financial institutions like BlackRock, HSBC and the State Bank of India. Please get involved because, as you will hear tonight, climate justice means pushing from within the seats of power and from outside too. Here is Erima Dahl from the MUA. She's a crane driver and she was MC in Sydney for a global day organised by Workers for Climate Action. It's so fantastic to be out together on the streets again in Hyde Park after so many weeks of lockdown. And to welcome us to country here today, we have Nadina Dixon, the daughter of Auntie Rhonda Dixon. Nadina is a Gadigal, Darug, Darawal and Ewan emerging elder and a traditional descendant of the Sydney and South Coast areas. She played a pivotal role in the massive Black Lives Matters rallies last June and she's the granddaughter of the incredible waterside worker and Aboriginal activist Chika Dixon. So please make very welcome to the stage, Nadina. We're just going to sing up country now and we're going to sing up the um, Seven Sisters Travelin'. Ready? Here we go. Travelin' Durman, Yenmar Baranura. Travelin' Durman, Yenmar Baranura. Travelin' Durman, Yenmar Baranura. Travelin' Durman, Yenmar Baranura.
230 years, what have we done to this continent? What have we done to our rivers? What have we done to our environment? What have we done to those special places that the First Nation people call home? Let me tell you that the land, the animals of this country are now becoming extinct. Why? Look around the world what's happening. We are destroying their habitats. We are destroying their homes. Think about it, but we are still destroying our homes. People, there is no plan B. There is nowhere else to go. We only live on one planet. It's time now that we come together in solidarity to fix and to amend the world we live in. There is no justice without climate justice. There is no justice without justice for First Nations people. I want to stand with my brothers and sisters of Pacific Islanders that are also suffering of the rising of the sea levels and the losing of their lands and islands. We now stand in the gap. We come to a fork in the road, there's only two roads left. One to life and survival, the other is death and destruction. Which road do you want to go down? We want to go down the right road. Let us stand for our children and our future generation. Stand for the little ones, their children and their children's children. People were in a revolution. It is time in history that we need to stand united for this cause. It's a cause to surviving of all humans on this planet. The stars are now lining up. We are now connecting up. Our message is gonna get out there. Let's get rid of the false, the fraudulent leaders of the world. Let's stop, let's stop the evil regime that are trying to control us and slave us in our lives. Let's stop the mining, stop the gassing, stop the fracking, stop the polluting of the air, stop the polluting of the rivers. This is now our time. My little lover, so for mawa malangi mama. Hi, my name is Mary Jane. Along with my family, we run a Pacific Cultural Centre in Liverpool. Yeah, Liverpool. <laughs> I'm a mother of three children, and I'm a proud Pacific Island woman from the island of Samoa. With deep respect and honour, I stand here on the land of the Gadigal people, fighting for the future of my Pacific Islands for the future of the world. At this very moment, my 21-year-old daughter, Moemuana, her name means sleeping ocean or calm seas, is in Glasgow, Scotland at COP26, fronting up, fronting up to the world leaders and the corporations, fighting for the Pacific Islands. As a mother, and a parent. My job is to ensure her protection, her future. I'm supposed to provide for her and keep her safe, but I cannot guarantee that in my lifetime or hers. 
At this very moment, she will be in Glasgow. Well, maybe she's sleeping at the moment, but she will be in Glasgow dancing the same dance that we are going to dance for you in a moment. I sent my child into an arena, to a war, that I liken to the biblical story of, of David and Goliath. I don't know how that's going to affect or impact her, but as a Pacific Islander, we have no other choice. But in our islands, we too have giants. They used to walk alongside us peacefully. Those giants are our mountains. They are our protectors. So with that in mind, it comforts my soul because I know that my daughter, although I've sent her into a war, she goes with the giants of the Pacific with a purpose. And don't get that wrong, Scott Morrison, we are not victims. She is not a victim. She's a climate leader. Pacific Islands are at the front lines of this climate crisis. We are in a climate emergency in the Pacific Islands. Across the world, the impacts of climate change are felt hardest by communities who are least responsible for the carbon emissions, including the Pacific Islands. The climate crisis puts risk at risk the preservation of our Pacific Islands and cultures, our Pacific values and traditions that are intrinsic to our being. That is why we are here fighting for our islands. If our governments do not act now, it will be too late. We must end the use of fossil fuels and transition to 100% community-led renewable energy. If, if the Pacific Islands will survive, but our people our people in the Pacific are resilient and we will find a way to survive. We are calling on the world leaders, you, Scott Morrison, step up. The time for talk is over and the Pacific needs action now. We are going to dance for you now, a dance from Samoa. The song talks about a dawning of a new era. In the Pacific, it is our hope that if we come together and we invite you to stand with us, that we too can look forward to a future, a dawning of a new era that is one that is fair, one that is safe, and one that is just for all. The Pacific Climate Warriors have a warrior war cry, and I would like if you could join me. Over there in Glasgow, they are saying, we are not drowning, we are fighting. We are not drowning! We are fighting! We are not drowning! We
major trade unions, the Maritime Union of Australia, the National Tertiary Education Union, the Independent Education Union, the United Workers Union and the Nurses and Midwives Association of New South Wales. Unions represent the workers that make our lights turn on every day. The frontline workers that will rebuild our cities after they are torn down by hurricanes or floods or bushfires. And the care workers who are going to look after us when the health impacts of climate change are felt. We may be up against some of the biggest, most powerful corporations in the world, but even they rely on workers to dig up their profits. And this is why unions and workers hold the key to the alternative future that we need. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Dr. Siobhan McDonnell is the Senior Lecturer at the Crawford School of Policy at ANU. And um, significantly, she was the lead Fiji negotiator for loss and damage at COP26. Essentially, loss and damage is really the impacts of climate change that exceed the adaptive capacity of countries. So we have a whole range of strategies around adaptation across the Pacific. The best of those strategies, I think, build from Pacific knowledge systems. But essentially, there, are, there is a scale now of climate impact that is being felt currently in the Pacific that is beyond adaptation. So in the last five years, there have been two Category 5 cyclones. That means that countries across the Pacific have barely managed to rebuild from one cyclone and they have been impacted by a second cyclone. We're not just talking about the material impacts associated with loss and damage, we're also talking about what are called non-economic loss and damage. So I work on issues of displacement and resettlement. For example, we're talking about, and we can understand these, for example, from the perspective of Indigenous Australia, we're talking about loss of attachment to ancestral place, loss of attachment to belonging, loss of, loss of place, loss of burial grounds, loss of spiritual and ancestral homes that are attached with that kind of scale of displacement and resettlement. We're also talking about slow onset processes like sea level rise. These are all far beyond the scope of adaptation financing at the moment. So this is what we're talking about when we start to talk about loss and damage and loss and damage impacts. This is why loss and damage is at the heart of climate justice and the climate justice movement. It's about saying 
the Pacific, through no fault of its own, is bearing the impacts of climate change, climate change that are impacting people's ways of life today, right now. At what point in time do carbon-emitting countries start to somehow finance that, finance the impacts of loss and damage? that the resources for loss and damage needed to be in addition to the adaptation funding, the $100 billion pledge. Fiji worked on the drafting of the text and Tuvalu, as our climate champion on loss and damage, then proposed the text in a high-level ministerial dialogue. And essentially the G77, the whole of the G77, the whole of the global south decided to come behind this text. The Latin American countries, the African group countries, the less developed countries, all the blocks that make up the G77, India, China. So in a very high-level ministerial meeting, all of the ministers essentially of the G77 block spoke. So Minister of Tuvalu, the Minister from Fiji, the minister from AOSIS, the minister from the African group, the minister from Latin America, the minister on behalf of the LDC spoke in support of this proposal. And at that point in time, America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia all said no. And over the next couple of days, we worked very, in a very detailed way with partners and we moved most of those partners forward in the negotiations. And at the end of that period, so before the Saturday plenary, when COP closed, Friday night we negotiated till 3am. At the same time, the Pacific leadership had gone forward and mobilised. So our Pacific leadership, the Fiji Prime Minister, the Fiji Attorney General, the Tuvalu uh, Climate Champion, the RMI Climate Envoy, all went forward and met with leadership. So the Fiji Prime Minister met with Boris Johnson. He met with the UN Secretary General. He met with the entire UK presidency. Like, every, people went forward in different directions. We met with the US. We met with the European Union at various levels in bilaterals and across the delegation and civil society mobilised, and they mobilised around this hashtag, Glasgow Facility for Loss and Damage. Philanthropists got in, on board and they started to commit funds to this facility. They said, if this is established, we will grant multiple millions of dollars to the establishment of this facility. However, we could not move the US and Canada. We could not move them. So in the end, we ended up with an operationalization of the Santiago network. There was significant additional funding that was put on the table for the Santiago network in the last two days of the negotiations by the EU and by the US, but a very disappointing outcome on loss and damage finance. So you've got to remember that this has been 20 years that this request has come. My sense is a loss and damage finance facility is inevitable. I think what we need to do now is prepare properly for that facility. We need to think as the Pacific about what we want in terms of a regional facility. What would it look like? What would it deliver? 
the needs of the Pacific differ substantially from some of the other regions. So the kinds of loss and damage impacts that are being experienced in Africa and in the Caribbean are substantially different from what's being experienced in the Pacific. And so the nature of a facility might look different depending on where you are. So I think there's a body of research that needs to happen. I think we need to organise. I think we need to regroup. I think we have to be clear about what we want to articulate going forward. I think we need to mobilise. And I think we need to campaign clearly and prepare ahead of COP27. COPs are processional. As soon as you finish one, you have to look ahead to the next one. And that's what I intend to do. So thank you. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Karina Nolan is the Executive Director of Original Power. She's speaking to us from the Northern Territory about the new First Nations Clean Energy Network. So welcome, Karina. Look, I believe you've had exceptional rain in Alice. So could you set the scene for us about what it's been like? Well, I arrived and people were telling me it was one of the biggest floods in 20 years. Um, And I've seen the Todd River in flow before, but um, this was pretty extraordinary. So it's been really beautiful. The birds are out. Um, This country is amazing, always anyway, but certainly with the water, it's really come to life. Yeah, I imagine it's wonderful, much more colourful than usual. Well, look, well, let's talk about this new network. There's a renewable energy boom, obviously, on. And as it ramps up, I see a danger in First Nations people being overlooked. And I heard people at the COP26, for example, talking about all the empty space in Australia. It sounded like terra nullius all over again. And I wonder how will your network insist on Aboriginal communities being in the driving seat. You're absolutely right. There is an urgent need for us to move to clean energy and certainly at scale in order for us to deal with climate change. And what we've we've spoken to communities, community organisations, land councils and others over the last 18 months, and people are really keen to play a central role in clean energy. But at the moment, we have really been left behind. We're seeing that our communities at a basic household level don't enjoy energy security. And what we mean by that is, you know, the ability to meet your basic household energy needs, um, you know, which has a really big impact on health because you can't keep your house cool or warm or wash your clothes, keep food, um, medicines, et cetera. Um, It really means that your quality of life is impacted. So there's two things going on there. We want to make sure that the clean energy revolution impacts the way energy is delivered and received on a daily basis by our communities, but also at that other end of the scale that those clean energy projects are really delivered the right way to ensure that all of us can benefit. Let's start at the big end. What what is the scale of these large solar projects being proposed and where will they be? There's, I mean, ARENA defines them as anything over 100 kilowatts really, but there's sort of large scale and then there's almost mega scale and Some of the export projects, there's a couple in Western Australia that are certainly underway and there's the large Sun Cable project in the Northern Territory. 
They're the projects we've been talking to traditional owners about. And while it's not our role to negotiate those agreements, that's the job of the land council and the companies to make sure those agreements are negotiated well, we are certainly encouraging traditional owners to share lessons from each other about what sorts of, you know, benefits would be important to them and what sorts of things they'd like to see in those agreements. And certainly you ask our mob who've been dealing with mining for many, many years, mm. people have learnt the lessons of the extractive industry and don't want to see those mistakes repeated. No, there's huge um, environmental damage. We've interviewed the people up at Borolula and I think they're one of your case studies for the local energy, renewable energy, but they've already suffered a huge amount from mining waste in their rivers and so on. Yeah, you're absolutely right that the community of Borolula have experienced all kinds of mining and are really keen to see their town and also surrounding outstations move to clean energy. So we're working on a feasibility study for a microgrid that should power the entire town, hopefully. And then we're also working on uh, smaller, you know, battery and solar installations for the outstations to try and support the surrounding communities to also have clean clean and affordable energy. Okay. Well, look, listeners know a lot about the Sun Cable Project. You know, we have several of our um, radio producers who are really keen on that and who've been up to the Northern Territory to talk to people about it. So that project plans to export energy from Darwin to Singapore by 2026, and it's a 10-gigawatt scale solar farm, and I think it's going to be starting near Tennant Creek and then transmitted to Darwin and then under the sea to Singapore. How will your network, this First Nations Clean Energy Network, how will they ensure agreements for land use and benefits flowing to First Nations groups? Yeah, the Sun Cable project is very exciting. And again, it's not, it's not our role to negotiate the agreements as such, but what we can do is support traditional owners to share the information with each other and other traditional owner groups who've also negotiated similar agreements about what sorts of benefits they want, local training and employment, power to their outstations and communities um, and other benefits packages. Um, one of the things we know, of course, about this project is you can't plug in and out along that high voltage cable all the way up to Darwin. So there needs to be other ways for that project to support local communities and outstations have power, and that can be part of those benefits and agreements. In your experience in Canada, were there any models that you noticed there that would, would help us here? So at the very beginning of this process, 18 months ago, we invited the Indigenous Clean Energy Network to talk to us and some of our roundtables. They've been doing this work for 20 years and they've now got over 200 medium to large scale Indigenous owned renewable projects. They look to be able to raise 1.5 billion in employment contracts over the next 10 years. And they've really made sure that the government has a policy framework that prioritises First Nations businesses. Look, you mentioned the health benefits of just a base, you know, energy is a human right, really. It's like water. You must have it for survival. And climate change is bringing us more frequent harsh conditions, which will be felt in the Northern Territory. And I interviewed a doctor up who had been at the Catherine Hospital, uh, Dr. Simon Quilty, and he painted this picture of, you know, just for listeners to understand what that means, that breakdown in energy. He said, when you're living in an overcrowded house and the $20 power card feeding the aircon expires and it's a 43 degree tropical heat day 
And when your heart and lungs and kidneys are chronically malfunctioning and the insulin in the fridge is slowly warming, the only free number you can call for help is triple zero for an ambulance trip to hospital. So, Karina, could you tell us how your First Nations Clean Energy Network will help low-income and remote people as the Northern Territory expects many more uh, 40-degree centigrade days, over 40 more per year, I think, is the projection. That's absolutely right. The number of extremely dangerous hot days is increasing in the Northern Territory. And what we need to see is a policy and a plan to support all households regardless of whether you're a public housing, um, outstation, rental property to have panels and batteries. And it can be done at scale. And one of the things that the First Nations Clean Energy Network, we have a community pillar, a policy pillar and an industry partnerships pillar. We will be working with the Territory Government to make sure that there's a policy shift that means the barriers that are in the way now can be removed to make sure that all of our communities can enjoy you know, access to that clean, affordable power. And that's right, we're hearing all sorts of stories of what people are having to do to manage, you know, calling just one room over summer, old people taking it in turns in sleeping, um, sharing fridges with their neighbours to keep medicines cool. It's really, it's a dire situation and we need to make sure that actually it's not that the policy change is made, it's it's a political problem, not a, not a technical one. Does the uh, existence of this new group called First Nations Clean Energy Network, will that be at the table of negotiations about these things? The idea of the network is that it will bring together the policy issues from across uh, different territory and state jurisdictions and that we'll have more collective power to make policy suggestions about what could be done differently. We're also being backed by government and unions and industry as well as academics and technical experts. So the network really will be made up of people who understand what the issues are and are are looking for solutions. Yes, I'm going to interview someone about the union and training, uh, capacity training needed for all of this a bit later but I, I i hope that this gains in power especially you've got some very impressive people on your list of supporters <laughs> and i just want to talk about regulation i listened to the parliament uh, a few weeks ago i was just so tired and i lay down i just tuned into the parliament by mistake almost and i heard barnaby joyce and the prime minister just throwing absolute aggro at the labor party you know, they were in election mode and they were just talking about, they just kept saying these words, legislation, regulation and taxation. That's all you'll get with the Labor Party. And I didn't know that legislation and regulation were dirty words. And then I read your one of your members, Tony McAvoy, who's a distinguished native title, Silk. He said, not only is Australia failing to pull its weight internationally, but it's failing to ensure that the renewables boom is regulated in a manner that protects First Nations rights and incentivizes First Nations participation. So there's a, that's a mouthful, but what regulation do you want to see? So we understand there is already relevant legislation that sets out minimum standards, but what we are asking for is best practice agreement making that goes above those. And we've seen the impact of the destruction of the Jukun Gorge caves. Right mm. across this country, we all understand that our leaders must be the ones that are looking after cultural heritage and actually guiding what needs to be done in our country. 
So we'd be saying to those companies, particularly those large-scale developments, make sure those agreements are negotiated well with free prior and informed consent. They're negotiated early. And if, you know, community interests are central to those agreements, um, then we can make sure that environmental and cultural heritage is protected, but also that, you know, communities know what sorts of benefits are needed in their communities and on country. Yes, it might sound like it's sort of more bureaucracy, but we're actually saying let's go beyond that. Let's make sure there's best practice and that, the, the you know, the companies that are rolling out these projects now can role model that. Karina, Let's sketch the bigger picture now, the international scene. I'd like you to tell our listeners about your work with Indigenous women in Canada and the USA to grow women's leadership. And I think in the news and certainly at COP26, I I attended many sessions where you heard from water protectors and people opposing pipelines and, you know, Indigenous people really showing the way out of the climate crisis. But then some of them said, we don't feel we're being heard. Our knowledge is just too different. Our worldview is too different for any of these people here who are just setting to make trillions to really understand. Can you just tell us what tell what you learned in from American and Canadian Indigenous people? Oh, I, I learned that there is absolute strength in Indigenous people right across world and that there are many amazing strong women who've been fighting at the forefront um, of keeping fossil fuels in the ground and know like we do that we absolutely have to see an end to the expansion of coal and gas and many of those organisations we've worked with over the years came and visited traditional owners here and talked about some of the ways they've been campaigning and organising and um, shared some of those you know that that knowledge but I think We also need to remember that a lot of people have made sacrifices. Um, Often people are faced with limited choices for development on their country and feel they have to say yes to some of these projects. Mm -hmm. And what we learned from a lot of those women is that that in order for people to say no to projects, sometimes they need a lot of backing and they also need alternatives, which is one of the things that is a real driver for us for the Clean Energy Network. If we can make sure that there are a whole range of economic development options on country including, um, you know, jobs, employment and making sure that those, those projects actually really don't impact country, sacred sites, our waters, um, that it's really the way we need to be going. And the women, you know, really, I think there was, there's still a lot to learn. Um, some of those women are going to be speaking to us at our forum. The Indigenous Clean Energy Network will be sp- speaking tomorrow morning um, to everyone. So that'll be great to hear where they've got to and some of the successes of their organisation. Yes, I might get some audio from that if, if it's good and we'll, we'll put that um, link it to our website. So thank you very much, Karina. That's a, a big endeavour, a big thing, First Nations Clean Energy Network. Thank you for talking to us today. It's my pleasure. We're really looking forward to see what we can do with our collective power on this. Hey, you mob. This virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Vaxed and Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Now we have a round table discussion from three youth delegates to COP26. They are from Global Voices. Amelia Gernrich from Melbourne University, Bethany Shigog from RMIT, and Emily Thames from Melbourne University. 
the Global Voices organisation looks like a big help to scholars who need direct experience. And COP26 was huge as an experience, I think. Amelia, you spoke to me before the COP and you were very keen for the intergenerational justice angle to be voiced in Glasgow. And since then, I think there's been a huge disappointment in, you know, in the media voicing this disappointment, which I think is a bit unwise because it, it is what it is, you know, and uh, being disappointed means people are deactivated. Anyway, I did hear from some Aboriginal speakers who were given a platform, but they said they didn't feel heard or understood. And I want to know, what was your experience of this COP26 conference? You know, a lot happened. Um, it definitely didn't meet the um, demands of a lot of crucial stakeholders that were there. That's definitely true. And I think that's probably why there is so much disappointment. But I think it's complicated because it's all part of this, like, huge machine, you know. Um, we kind of need the disappointment but also we need to acknowledge that a lot was done. You know, a lot of people, I think definitely some of us, and you know, this is actually one of the more productive conferences of the parties. Um, actually, quite a lot of agreements and a lot of pledges were made. That doesn't mean that the work is done, but it does mean that, you know, change is possible and that I think this is like a sign that we can push the machine forward. So I guess some of the main criticisms or maybe things that I was disappointed by were that um, I think, you know, obviously not enough commitment to mitigation. I mean, look, there was a lot of talk about adaptation, but adaptation is crucial because climate change is happening now, but a lot of adaptation is actually quite difficult to implement and the mechanisms and technologies are uncertain. So really what we should be doing is trying to cut emissions by as much as possible in countries like Australia, um, who are some of the biggest emitters, are pledging all of this money and time to adaptation without necessarily making the necessary commitments mitigation wise it's kind of like um you know you turn on the turn on the tap and then offer someone a bucket you know offer someone a mop you know and you're not you're not offering to turn off the tap so i guess that was one kind of disappointing thing that did, mit, mit, mitigation wasn't stronger perhaps that it, some of the events as well were not as inclusive as they should have been and i think this is coming back to whether or not youth and indigenous people and a lot of people who are most affected by climate change were actually effectively heard. Yeah, there was platforming and there were events and people got to express themselves, but the question is where they listened to. You know, for example, in the session where Younger, which is the kind of youth NGO uh, section of the UN, they presented their demands and they were heard. And youth were applauded for their hard work and enthusiasm, but their actual demands weren't really addressed. Um, Alok Sharma, for example, didn't actually explicitly address the role that these demands would play in negotiations or how, you know, these would actually be factored in. So I think a lot of people, um, definitely some of the people we spoke to, and I think sometimes, you know, it, it felt like we were being condescended to a little bit. We'd want to see evidence, concrete evidence of how people are being listened to and how, how, you know, like it's not just a matter of presenting our demands just to tick a box and just to um, make people happy, you know, like how is this actually going to be integrated at the negotiating table? You know, young people should have a seat at the negotiating table. Indigenous people should be at the negotiating table. And a lot of the key negotiating tables did not involve a lot of the people who you know, were most affected. Yes, I heard that Reverend Ray Minicon in another session and he said, I hate being patronised. And I feel yes. the youth voice is a little bit patronised. It's a bit parasitic, you know, these people in their 70s 
you know, nodding wisely and clapping loudly when these beautiful young people get up from all over the world. I heard that young one from Kenya, another one from Uganda, and they're so beautiful and so sincere and they speak in a different language because they are speaking in the language of, of hoping that people will do something. Meanwhile, I want to go back to this thing about mitigation. Bethany, I know your field is renewable energy and exporting it, but I was shocked that over 500 representatives from the fossil fuel industry were allowed in and there were these youth people outside with placards saying why are they inside and uh, you know interviews conducted in in the russian pavilion between gas and oil companies you know in the light of everybody being there and the australian pavilion was sponsored by santos gas i just wonder what were your thoughts on that how is that justified i mean that would be one easy thing is let those people not come in it's important to have every actor there, the ones that are like businesses as well. Although the fact that they are kind of outnumbering other voices is quite an interesting kind of dynamic that probably doesn't play out uh, too well in real life. Interesting point that was brought up in a meeting where they were coming through as um, I think like national delegates. Um, so they weren't just coming as businesses, but they were actually coming as representatives kind of from a nation or a country specifically. This happened uh, occasionally in Australia as well, um, which is unsurprising uh, in some aspects, but that's uh, a controversial in itself because it's like these are businesses, they're not represented, like not, they're not representing our people, they're not, um, you know, bringing other voices to their table other than their business. I can see it from two ends, but I also think that they probably should kind of take a step back. Right. Well, your study focus is on the export of renewable energy and mm. this will make trillions for private companies. Maybe it'll be some of those same companies. Obviously, they'll, you know, have a renewable arm and an old-fashioned fossil fuel arm, and they know how to do energy, so they will be already positioning themselves as Forest Futures, Twiggy Forest's company, is already positioning himself to do, and many countries around the world. What chance of stopping this boom wrecking the environment again? It's very extractivist in all those minerals and um, things that Australia has in great quantities, and it's all on traditional, a lot of it's on traditional lands where the people will be steamrolled again. We've heard Karina Nolan on this program talking about that. So what are the chances of doing this differently? I think sustainability is a constant debate about what is more sustainable at that current moment. Um, and I think that's a huge issue that's always going to continue being debated. And that's what we want. We want like critical debate around it. Um, but it's always going to be, all right, what's better at this current moment? Uh, is it going to be renewable energy or is it going to be kind of coal or gas? Um, and there's a lot of conversation happening in that space. Yeah, well, I don't hear um, much of that conversation. And I, I think the public will be taken unawares that this is another big boom. And there's an article in The New Scientist, I think, one month ago about how extractivist that renewable energy boom is going to be how to tame it, how to regulate it. And we heard uh, Scott Morrison in our parliament just about a month ago, just absolutely shouting with Barnaby Joyce in chorus practically against regulation and taxation and regulation, against regulation as if it's a dirty word of it, and, and, and legislation even, he said. Those three things, mm. legislation, regulation and taxation, this little mantra the two of them had, it was ugly mm. because those are the things on which our safety is 
um, based? You see, I think that whilst we have the structures we have in place, like the solutions are going to be kind of a function of the structures. So if the, the renewable energy solutions are going to be extractive, if the de general policy environment is extractive and exploitative, for example, you know, we don't, we haven't recognised our own Indigenous people in our constitution, you know, and so there is very little actual influence that Indigenous people have at any level of government over any level of policy. Maybe, Emily, you'd like to speak a bit to this because yeah. this is your focus area. Although this COP did really improve Indigenous representation in terms of there was actually a Blue Zone event for the facilitative working group of the local and local communities and Indigenous peoples platform, there were still there was still definitely an outweighed ratio in terms of the number of Green Zone events that Indigenous people were represented at versus Blue Zone events, which were, of course, the more official events. And there was also real issues with representation at the negotiators table, which Amelia mentioned earlier, especially for Australia and, you know, the Australian Pavilion. You know, sure, it had good coffee, but it was run by Santos and Santos had an official delegate in the negotiate in the, the actual delegation team and there were not there was not a single indigenous negotiator actually invited so Ray Minicon he was there but as a civilian you're all students and uh, I'd like to know where you're heading where you want to work uh, where you want to devote your energies having had the privilege of seeing all of this and so many people are disappointed by the highest level the international level but as one politician said to me, Peg Putz, she's talking about forestry, she said, well, it's corrupt at the local level. It's got to be corrupt at the international level too. It's, it's a very mixed bag. But where are you heading? Are you hoping to be part of that world, Amelia? I'm very um, driven by advocacy and activism. Um, so I would personally really quite like to be working for one of the NGOs that I think is doing good, that is um, securing climate justice. Um, so in whatever capacity that I can work in that sense that's kind of what I'm focusing on in my in my master's at the moment is climate justice um so yeah I guess that's kind of where I'm pointing myself at wherever I fit into the equation in that sense <laughs> I do really enjoy kind of the debates at the higher level but I have worked and been involved in grassroots level action and I find that so much more humbling to be part of the community in that sense and I feel like we underestimate the power of like grassroots action so kind of echoing a little bit of what Amelia said that's probably something I'm looking uh, forward to kind of getting more involved in as well as the kind of top level negotiation space even though it is kind of ugly but it does um, have an impact too. What about the street? I followed a lot of the sessions at Glasgow but from the street it was called COP TV. One of the main demands of the groups is to broaden the number of people who contribute to this you know citizens assemblies i've interviewed people in france they literally had a citizens assembly it was a quite a formal well-organized thing and those people were transformed by the experience yeah absolutely you know because what's said at the negotiation table doesn't necessarily match up to what is said to the public so i think that's the thing you know actually having more representatives of the people who matter in the room where the decisions are actually being made you know having an indigenous representative having or more you know than one um, or having youth representatives actually at the table because you know when you have a separate working group that puts together a big report that's then presented and everyone nods very politely and says yes we will take this into consideration it's just hard to know you know how to what extent that's actually true or to what extent that is placating you you know so I think that yeah people want actual seats. COP26 um I always like putting in the last word but COP26 was I think a momentous like COP 
in my opinion, there's going to be a lot more collaboration between nations rather than standing as two separate parties and kind of communicating and helping each other out if we really want to overcome climate change. Don't underestimate the value of your own individual voice and vote. Like, Thank you. Well, we've been talking to three people from the Global Voices Group and they are all at university, at Amelia Goonridge, Bethany Shagog and Emily Thames. And they, they're all going to be contributing in the next 10 years. And I hope it's not in some boring bureaucracy back room of COP26. I hope COP sessions get much more enlarged by, as you said, more, many more people. So thanks very much, all of you. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion, east or west. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my head back. Really loud, really loud. listening to the Climate Action Show at Radio Skid Row in Sydney and Radio 3CR in Melbourne, where you can find the podcast. Bonus items from the rally can be found in that podcast, and downloads are the main way we know that you are listening. Please support us by passing these downloads on to anyone you know needs to hear about this information, which they won't hear on the mainstream. Thanks tonight to Karina Nolan, from First Nations Clean Energy Network, to Erima Dahl, Nadina Dixon, Bruce Shillingsworth, and Mary Ann from the Global Day of Climate Action in Sydney. Thank you to Siobhan McDonnell, Fiji's top negotiator on loss and damage at COP26. And a shout out to Phil Glendinning and Corinne Faguere at the Edmund Rice Pacific Calling Partnership. Many thanks to our Global Voices delegates to COP26, Amelia Goonridge, Bethany Shigog, and Emily Tamez. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Tens of thousands of children are school striking for the climate on the streets of Brussels. Hundreds of thousands are doing the same all over the world. We are school striking because we have done our homework. And some of us are here today. People always tell us that they are so hopeful. They are hopeful that the young people are going to save the world. But we are not. There is simply not enough time to wait for us to grow up and become the ones in charge. We need to have bended the emissions curve steep downwards. That is next year. We must treat green tech as a public commons so it spreads as quickly as possible and is not locked away behind IP protections like COVID vaccines. We do not suffer from scarcity. We suffer from rampant greed, whether it is the failure to address climate change, whether it is the public health failure, whether it is the scandal of, glo of global poverty. 
All of it is rooted in the same moral failures of massive and gaping inequalities that allow the super rich to hoard without limits and to obstruct sensible, accessible, and life-saving action that threatens their business models. Whether that business model is extracting gas or oil or coal or privatizing medical knowledge. We have to have the courage to confront the economic forces and logics that have driven us to this precipice. If we do, we will quickly discover that we have enough money to spite poverty, to meet everyone's basic needs, all while battling the existential crisis of climate breakdown. We are in a true crisis, and in a true crisis, you spend what it takes because losing is unthinkable.